All right, will you please take your Bibles this morning and open them with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. Mark 14. This passage formally begins what we call the passion narrative of the Lord Jesus, the events leading to and surrounding his arrest, his crucifixion, and burial. It is called passion because the word passion is often translated as suffering or to suffer. So let's begin this final journey with Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, beginning at verse Number one of Mark 14. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, let there, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper... As he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii, and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For, the, for you will always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Our Lord, we ask your blessing upon the reading of your sacred word. It is not the words of men, but the word of the living God. And Father, we ask that you would send your Spirit into our hearts even now to illuminate the meaning of this text, to help us understand it as Mark's readers would have understood it, and to help us apply it to our lives today. We ask these things for the glory of your Son, and in his name we pray. Amen. If I were to ask you the question this morning, what is your greatest treasure? What is your greatest treasure in life? 
how would you answer it? What do you and, and I love more than anything else? It is often said that if you want to know what we love and treasure most, just look at our bank accounts. You've heard that before. But I'm not so sure, brothers and sisters, that how or where we spend our money tells the whole story. I mean, if you look at my bank account, you might conclude that food was my treasure. Or better yet, maybe this company called Atlantic City Electric. But that's for a whole different reason. You see, what we treasure is not about our checking account. But rather, what we treasure is that which we are willing to sacrifice all of our other treasures for, as if they counted as nothing by comparison. So what we treasure, just to repeat that, what we treasure most is that which we are willing to sacrifice all of our other treasures for as if they counted as nothing by comparison. And we might well consider the passage before us today in Mark 14 as a a vivid illustration of that very truth. And friends, the convicting implication of this passage this morning is that we often don't love and treasure what we should. In fact, there are three sets of characters in this episode in Mark 14, and only one of them treasured rightly, because only one of them treasured the Lord Jesus Christ. And that really is the question that this text puts before us today, isn't it? Who do we love most? Who do we treasure most? Is it our spouses? Is it our, our girlfriends, our boyfriends, our significant others? Is it our families, our children, our jobs, our bank accounts, our status? Is it our particular habits and comforts that bring us pleasure? Let that be the question that sort of simmers throughout this message this morning, friends. What do I treasure most? Well, today we're going to work through this text, this passage, and see a contrast. Mark is so good at creating contrast. We're going to see a contrast of those who treasure Jesus and of those who did not treasure Jesus. And prayerfully... God will grant us hearts to treasure His Son the way that we should, to treasure Him rightly. And so the first main sort of heading that we want to see here is that Jesus is not treasured, but Jesus is hated by many. He is hated by many. Look at verse number 1. Mark says, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. 
And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and to kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So Mark, sort of, he, he grounds this in, in real history, as all of the Bible is. And he says that it's now two days before the Passover. Now the Jews counted time inclusively. Now what that means is that any part of a day could be counted as that day. So then this is most likely Wednesday of Passover week. The Passover, of course, was Israel's remembrance. It was Israel's celebration of their exodus from Egypt somewhere around 1,500 years or so earlier. That celebration would begin on Thursday evening at sunset. But the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling body of Israel, the Sanhedrin and the larger religious establishment that they represented, they had finally had enough of this Galilean rabbi named Jesus. And remember, we've been going through this Passover week for several weeks now. He's, Jesus has come into the temple, turned over the tables. He has called them out. And they, they're done. They're done with the Lord. And they were now in full-on conspiracy mode to get rid of Jesus. But the time was not quite right. You see, the crowds in Jerusalem during Passover week, which you know, commentators speculate could be anywhere from 300,000 to over a million, the crowds would make it difficult during Passover week in Jerusalem to carry out their murderous plot without starting a riot. I mean, remember, just a few days earlier, the people had ushered Jesus in on Palm Sunday, right? But no matter what, Jesus had to be silenced. Think about this, friends. Think about the, the gravitas of this. These were Israel's religious leaders conspiring to murder the incarnate Son of God. John says, He came to His own, and His own received Him not. What else was driving their plans to kill Jesus but just pure hatred? They hated him because he was a threat to their power. He was a threat to their control over the religious life of Israel. They hated him because he called out their corruption and their hypocrisy. And most of all, they hated him because of who he claimed to be which was the Son of God. This was the ultimate blasphemy. And in their self-righteous hypocrisy, friends, they hated Him. 
Listen to what Jesus says in John 15, beginning at verse number 23. He says, Whoever hates me, hates my Father also. You see, the Jews, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, they were always appealing to their ethnic heritage, their religious heritage. Our father is Abraham, they said. Jesus says, no, whoever hates me hates my father also. Verse 24 of John 15, If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. He's quoting from Psalms here. They hated me without cause. What is hatred expressed but murder? That's why we read this morning from 1 John. Friends, have you ever felt so much hatred in your heart towards someone that you wanted them dead? (laughs) I'm not asking for any confessions. Have you ever felt so much hatred in your heart that you wanted to see someone else just gone? Imagine the hatred that one must have to want someone else dead. And most of us can probably say no. We have not hated someone that much to want them dead. But then again, we hold secrets in the deep recesses of our hearts, don't we? That no one else will ever know about. And apart from the grace of God to rescue us from our inner depravity, friends, you and I may very well be just like the Sanhedrin here in this text who hated Jesus so much they wanted him dead and what else have we seen over the centuries but a world that hates the Lord Jesus Christ let's not deceive ourselves a profession of faith does not exempt us from that this was the religious leaders here in Israel who hated Christ And many people still today wear a cloak of religion, but they refuse to accept the claims of Christ. Just like them then. They refuse to submit to His Lordship over their lives. Jesus is still hated by many, whether we're religious or not. Secondly, we see the contrast that Mark is beginning to paint for us. The scene shifts, and now we see that Jesus is loved by some. So he's hated by many, but now he's loved by some. Look at verse number 3. While he was at Bethany, 
In the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. Very costly, she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Friends, this is a remarkable account. There's literally, we could take the entire sermon and expound on just this part of these verses. This is remarkable, what she did. But before we get to actually her act, we need to sort of address an issue of chronology, an issue of agreement among the gospel writers. Because John, in chapter 12 of his gospel, places this event six days before the Passover. But Mark says that they were only two days from Passover. What in the world is going on? The skeptics will, of course, in their little annotated skeptics Bible that you can find online, and this will be underlined, and, well, here's another contradiction. There is no contradiction in Scripture, friends. When we step back and read the broader context here of chapter 14, Verses 1 through 11 in particular, what we find is that it should become clear that Mark is contrasting the anointing of Jesus by this woman, which was an act of love and devotion. He's contrasting that with the hatred of the Sanhedrin and the betrayal of Judas, which we haven't actually addressed yet. So Mark is not so much concerned with the chronology of these events as he is concerned with their theological significance. This is not uncommon among the gospel writers. We see them do this often. So when did this happen? It happened on Saturday prior to Passover week, just like John says. But Mark inserts it here. Why? To draw for his readers, to paint for his readers, a vivid contrast between love for Christ and hatred for Christ. That's what he's doing. And in doing so, he really is compelling us to choose how we will respond to Christ, you see? Will we hate him like the religious leaders and Judas? Will we betray him like that? Or will we love him and worship him like this woman? Let's look at her story. They were meeting in the house of a man named Simon. Mark says he was a leper. He adds that distinction, the implication being that Jesus had probably previously healed him of his leprosy. Or they certainly wouldn't have been having dinner at his house, would they? And Mark doesn't identify this woman by name, but John does. And he says that her name was Mary, the sister of Lazarus. And this flask of ointment that she broke over his head was pure... Nard. It was a woody 
and sweet-smelling expensive oil that had been imported from northern India. It was customary in this culture to anoint the head of, a, of an honored guest with olive oil as a token of hospitality, but Mary went so much further. Her act was extreme. This bottle of ointment that she broke and poured over the head of Jesus, John adds actually that she poured it over his feet as well. This bottle of oil or ointment was extremely valuable. The text tells us that it was worth 300 denarii. That's about a year's worth of salary, a year's worth of wages for the common worker. Think about that. Think about what you make in a year. That might be a way of comparing the cost of her sacrifice here. This bottle of ointment, this flask of ointment, this alabaster box may have been a treasured family heirloom. It likely was, but Mary was going all out here, friends. And what her extreme act showed was the love and devotion that she had in her heart toward the Lord Jesus. This was an act of worship. It was sweet. It was costly. And her extravagant love, it aggravated the disciples, didn't it? Look at verse number 4. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. Oh, my friends, put yourself here in this house of Simon the leper. Watch Mary break this box, this bottle of expensive ointment over the head and feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. How would you respond if you knew that it was worth a year's worth of wages? In John's episode, or John's account of this episode, he clarifies, in fact, that it was Judas who was so irritated by what Mary did. He was the one who led the protest of this anointing of the Lord Jesus. And friends, I wonder this morning, how often do we stand in pious judgment over the worship of others? When you see someone standing in church, hands lifted, tears streaming down their face, when we sing of the goodness and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray in His name, when we recount His glories and the excellencies of His person and work, and we see one another, perhaps, behaving somewhat oddly, 
And we think to ourselves, well, they should really keep themselves composed a little bit better than that. But Jesus rebuked the disciples for their judgmentalism. He rebukes us as well. Verse 6, he said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you would not always have me. Oh, friends, there is deity embedded all in, in the words of that verse. We, we can't go there. Verse 8, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. He's like, he's like, back off, guys. You have no idea what she's doing. You think she's wasted a year's worth of money? But she has done everything that she could. She has done, she has given her best to express her love for me. And it is a beautiful thing, he says. And really, when you read the text, the, the implication here is that Mary herself doesn't really even fully understand the significance of what she's doing. Because Jesus says that what she has done is pointing to his death. You see, the cross is always looming. That great substitution of the righteous for the unrighteous. It's now just around the corner. It's just a few days away. Jesus knows that his time is short. And so he interprets Mary's anointing, her great extravagancy, in light of his impending death and burial, which is something that, although he had warned them before more than three, three times, this is something that neither she nor his disciples knew was literally days away. They didn't know. Her act of love cost her much. But you know what? She considered it nothing compared to the treasure that she had in Jesus. And I wonder, friends, are we, like Mary, willing to empty the treasures of our lives at the feet of Jesus? Are we willing to do that, to be extreme so that other people look at us and say, well, you, what a waste How would you waste your lives on this religion? On a myth? Are we willing to be like Mary? I'm not talking about giving money to the church. I'm not talking about selling stock to give to a missionary. I'm talking about treasuring the person of Jesus himself in such a way so that the things that we hold dear to us, that we hold most dear, are expendable 
for His sake? Are you willing to break it all over and pour it on the Lord Jesus Christ? Friends, oh, that God would give us this kind of love and treasure for the Lord Jesus like that this morning. We need it. I, I need it. But there is still one more character in this episode, isn't there? There is one more contrast that Mark wants us to see and to feel. Look at verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve. Don't let that little phrase escape your attention. Who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him. And when they, the, the chief priest, the Sanhedrin, that's what he's talking about, when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity, Judas sought an opportunity to betray Christ. So Jesus is hated by many, even the religious. He is loved by some. And now we find here that Jesus is betrayed by one. He's betrayed by one. I I, I don't have too much to say about Judas yet at this point because we're going to see the full act of his betrayal soon as we come to these verses in the subsequent chapters. But we need to see Mark complete the contrast. At the end of verse 2, what do we find? But the Sanhedrin who are looking for a way to secretly get a hold of Jesus away from the crowds. And now in verse 10, that opportunity will present itself. Judas will know when and where Jesus is away from the crowds, and he will be the one to hand the Son of God over to the hands of wicked men. You may remember from earlier messages in this series, we've been at this for, I guess, over a year. You may remember that sometimes Mark uses a, a literary technique where he will construct his, he, he, he will build his narrative like a sandwich. He will introduce one event, then he will abruptly shift to another before finally resolving the initial event, sort of building a sandwich with three layers. He's done it several times already in this gospel, and that's what he's doing here. That's why he places Mary's anointing of Jesus in between the hatred of the religious leaders and the decision of Judas to betray him. She is the middle layer that makes his point that Jesus is worth more than anything, but not to everyone. The Sanhedrin treasured their control 
more than Jesus. Judas treasured money more than Jesus. John 12, 6 says that Judas was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas would help himself to the treasury of the disciples. That's why he got so upset when he saw what Mary did. And all the money that in his estimation had been wasted. And I wonder, friends, was this what sent Judas over the edge to betray the Lord? Was this the decisive event that erupted his greedy heart? He treasured money. The Sanhedrin treasured control. But Mary... She just treasured Jesus. And what about us? Is He worth more than all of our treasure this morning, friends? What about it, young person? Is He worth more to you than whatever you hold dearest to your heart? Will we break the flask of our lives and pour it over Jesus? Or will we betray Him to worldly pursuits and affections? If you're here and you do not love the Lord Jesus Christ like you should, and I, friends, I confess, I believe that's, that's likely all of us. And let us come to Him today and take whatever that we are treasuring more than Him and just break it and pour it over His feet. Pour it out over Him so that He is our greatest treasure. This whole account really goes beyond Mary's love for Jesus. Really, it does, doesn't it? It it points us to something greater, far greater, and that's a holy God's extravagant love for us. Who took His Son who was heaven's greatest treasure, and broke Him and poured Him out for us. His violent, His bloody death, a sweet and beautiful gift for us who have no hope of ever satisfying His righteousness in ourselves. That's what we need to see here. Jesus broken for us. Jesus beautiful for us. Friends, turn to Christ. Turn away from your self-righteousness. May we turn away from our sin. 
and trust in Christ today. Let's pray.